Okay, so uh, we're on lesson 11. This is the second to last class of the, of the AIC. And uh, this lesson 11 is on the Lord's Supper. And we'll touch a little bit on the church at the end. Um, so what I want to do is just straight from the get-go tell you that there are four main major views of the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> and I'm going to... I made a little uh, graph to show you this. Hmm. Hold on. Okay, here we go. So here are the, the four main views. And I'll send this out to you if you want, if you request it. Um, on the left-hand column, I have what is used, uh, what is taught, what is received, when it's accomplished, and is this a sacrifice? Uh, then I have the four columns here. I have the Zwinglian view, the Reformed view, the Lutheran view, and the Roman Catholic view. And I'll get into this later, but I just want to give you the, the layout first so that you can categorize this in your mind as we go through this. And then I'll, um, I'll, I'll show you what each... Uh, teaches, and then I'll tell you about the Lutheran view, why we view it this way. Um, this is the, the the best way I think I can um, get through everything in about an hour and 15 minutes. So regarding the Zwinglian view, I'll just go straight across the board here. Uh, what is used? So the Zwinglians uh, would use bread and wine. Those are the elements of the Lord's Supper. Or they would substitute uh, or use the substitute of grape juice as well. Uh, the Reformed would use bread and wine, and they would say, some of them would say that the wine has to be red. Um, the Lutherans uh, use bread and wine, and that the, the color of the wine doesn't matter. It could be red or white, but that it is wine and not grape juice. Uh, there's another lesson I could give on where grape juice came from, uh, Welch's grape juice, and how it's actually a different substance from wine itself. Um, okay, and then there's the Roman Catholic view, which is bread and wine. That's what they use. And the same idea here, it doesn't matter the, the color of the wine. But what is taught? So the Zwinglians teach a memorialist view or memorialism. And the idea is that the Lord's Supper is a symbol or a representation of the body and blood of Jesus. So it's done, it, it, it's not, there's nothing there. It's just bread and wine. The activity is going on in your heart inside of you. Uh, the reform view, they call this, their view, the real presence. <clears throat> and they say that Christ is divinely present. Uh, that he is present in, uh, in spirit or spiritually present but not corporally, not physically in his body. Um, that's the Reformed view. The Lutheran view is that, uh, I would call this the scriptural view, that is Christ in his entirety, entirety, uh, both physically and spiritually, is present in the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> so Christ isn't divided here, as if we, have, we commune with part of Christ, or the spiritual or divine part of Christ, but not the human the humanity or the 
that part of Christ, but rather it is one Christ and we commune with him completely. And then finally, there's transubstantiation. This is the Roman Catholic view, and it's the idea that the bread and wine change into the very body and blood of Jesus and therefore cease to be bread and wine. Now, I, if I, I don't think we have the time to go through this, but on the teaching of transubstantiation, uh, this isn't the main issue with between the Lutherans um, or that the Lutherans criticize the Catholics for in their view of the Lord's Supper. Uh, it is a problem because it's inserting philosophy. This is a philosophy here of substance and accidents. And it's saying that the, the accidents remain the same of bread and wine, but the substance of it has changed completely and it's no longer bread, no longer wine. Um, I could talk more about this, but we don't have that much time here. But that's transubstantiation. That's the Roman Catholic view. Uh, falsely, the Lutherans are accused or said to have a different view called consubstantiation. But that's not true. Um, that, that is not our view. We don't, we're not consubstantiists. Um, we, we, actually, we don't have a, a term or a philosophy or really an interpretation of the Lord's Supper. And I'll talk about that later too. Anyway, that's just an overview of the four differences. Um, the Zwinglian view, uh, let's consider what is received. The Zwinglian view says that only bread and wine or grape juice is received and that Christ is remembered by the mind. For the Reformed, bread and wine and the spiritual nature of Christ, that is only the divine nature, are received. Uh, the Lutheran view, bread and wine, and the body and blood of Jesus uh, is received into the mouth. He is received according to both natures, human and divine. In the Roman Catholic view and teaching, what's received is only the body and blood of Jesus and not bread and wine. Uh, so on the one hand, you have those uh, the Zwinglians who say that it is only bread and wine, and the Roman Catholics who say it is only the body and blood of Jesus. Um, when you uh, uh, consider what is then accomplished, or when is this accomplished? The Zwinglians have a, oh, there's a typo here. It's called receptionism. That's their view, which means that it is the Lord's Supper when you receive it. So your faith is making the sacrament. Um, but in the Zwinglian view, you're only receiving bread and wine. So the, the purpose of this and when it's done is in your memory, in your mind. Uh, the Reformed have a receptionist view as well, that faith makes the sacrament. If you don't have faith, then you're not receiving anything. You're only receiving bread and wine. But if you have faith, then you are receiving the spiritual nature of Christ. You're communing with him by ascending to where he is through faith. Um, but, so faith is required here. Uh, that faith makes the sacrament or breaks the sacrament. If you have faith, you have the sacrament. If you don't have faith, you don't have the sacrament. So there's nothing there. Uh, for Let me go to the Roman Catholic view. I'm going to skip the Lutherans here for a second. Um, the Roman Catholics have a consecrationist and ordination view. Uh, they would say that the word of the priest makes the sacrament. So it's when the priest speaks it. But it's only because the priest is speaking it. He has indelible character. And so he, he has this ability then that nobody else has 
to cause transubstantiation. Uh, now, back to the Lutheran view, <clears throat> we say, when is this accomplished? Uh, we, uh, our uh, view is a consecrationist view. That is, when the word um, is spoken, we call these words, the specific words, the verba domini, that is the Latin for the words of our Lord. Uh, so we say that the word makes the sacrament, and that's when it becomes the sacrament. That's when it is the body and blood of Christ. That's when Christ is present. Not when you receive it, but when he says it is. When he says, this is my body, then that's when it is his body. And not our faith doesn't contribute or change the sacrament or change bre bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And there's a, a nuance here between the Lutheran and the Roman Catholic view. Uh, the Lutherans say it is because of the word of God uh, that it's not the pastor himself. But it is the word alone which makes the body, uh, the, the bread and wine, uh, the body and blood of Christ. But the Roman Catholic view says that it's not really the word alone, but also the character of the priest. Okay, uh, finally, the question here is, um, <clears throat> the question here is, is this a sacrifice? The Zwinglians would say no, there's no sacrifice happening here. The Reformed say no. There's no sacrifice happening here. The Lutherans say no, there's no sacrifice happening here. Rather, it is the distribution of the sacrifice, the distribution of what Christ won on the cross, the benefit of it, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and Christ himself is there, but he's not being sacrificed. The Roman Catholic view is that there is indeed a sacrifice. And they would call this, according to their catechism, a propitiatory sacrifice. This is where we get the, this is where they come up with the term, the sacrifice of the mass. Now, I told you about transubstantiation, that that is an issue, but it's not the main issue that Lutherans um, have had with Roman Catholic theology on the Lord's Supper. The main issue is this last point, uh, whether this is a sacrifice or not, the sacrifice of the mass. That is the thing that really is breaking fellowship, and that's a, that's a problem. Uh, that's more of a doctrinal and theological issue. Transubstantiation is more of a philosophical issue. Um, we don't agree with it, but it, it, it's, uh, it's less of a problem. I could put it that way. So I, I'll send this out to you guys. That way you can see this. Uh, that's just a layout of the four main views. And I'd like to talk about um, specifically the Lutheran view and tell you um, why this is scriptural and why it's coming from the scriptures alone. <clears throat> By the way, if you want to read more about those four views, there's a really good book called uh, Understanding Four Views on the Lord's Supper. It was written in 2009. I think it's published by Zondervan. <clears throat> and uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good book. It goes through all these four views and it has one person representing that view uh, debate it or, or present it and then others, the other three will debate it and respond to it. And this happens throughout the book. It's, it's actually very good. Um, by the way, I, know, I should have started with this, but the names for the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper has a number of different names. Uh, it's called Holy Communion, the Sacrament of the Altar, the Lord's Table, uh, the Breaking of the Bread, the Eucharist, and the Lord's Supper. Um, 
there may be other names, but they're escaping me right now. But those are kind of the six main names of it. Uh, that's what I'm referring to. Uh, that, that's what it's called. Now, we can use any of these names uh, for it. But I prefer the final name I named, which is the Lord's Supper, because it tells you uh, to whom it belongs, which is to Christ himself. It's, it's the Lord's, and it is not our supper. Um, and it's not that we can't use the other names, but that's the term I would prefer really at Zion. Um, now, that leads me to the first question, which is this, where does the Lord's Supper come from? Uh, so we began the study of baptism with the same question we asked about um, where does this come from? Is this a creation of the early church? Uh, is it a creation of a synod or a council? Did the apostles come up with it and thought this was a nice idea? Or the Pope? Was it decreed or something like this? And if it is, if it's from human origin or of a human origin, then we can debate it and change it. But if it is of a divine origin, then we can't. Then we hold to what the words say. So we have a number of texts to consider. Matthew 26. Uh, hold on. Okay. Uh, Matthew 26, starting at verse 26. We have four texts from uh, where we draw the, the teaching of the Lord's Supper in the Bible, in the New Testament. Uh, they're the th synoptic gospels, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and 1 Corinthians 11. So looking at Matthew 26, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. Oh, by the way, uh, given thanks, this is where we get the word Eucharist from. It means thanksgiving. Uh, the Greek word is Eucharistetl. So, he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So that's the first text in Matthew 26. Mark also records this in his gospel. Mark 22 through 24. Sorry, Mark 14, 22 through 24. It says, And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Again, uh, we see that it's Jesus who is uh, instituting this. Let's look at Luke Chapter 22, starting at verse 19. Um, he says, it says, And he took bread, that is referring to Jesus, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, 
This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So he, he then uh, says that in Luke 22, it's recorded. And then we also have the text in 1 Corinthians 11. And this is interesting because Paul uh, was not a Christian at this time, at the time of the Last Supper. Um, he became a Christian later. Also, Paul wasn't there for the Lord's Supper. He wasn't there when, when Jesus gave it. He wasn't uh, one of the apostles there with him. However, he also tells us that uh, the, the same words. And he, he says, actually, you, you can hear his words uh, himself. He says that he, he received these words from Jesus too. So verse 23 says, uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he, when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he continues, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there we have uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul, who write about this. The, the main point that I'm showing you with these texts is that it is Jesus himself who institutes the Lord's Supper. It's not coming from the disciples or, or anywhere else. This is in the New Testament. Uh, now, the question is, well, when did he give this? Um, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23, we just read that. That's what Paul writes. And he says, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. So this is the, the, the day or the night, the evening before he is crucified. Um, Judas is going to betray him after uh, this, this very meal. Um, the other text is Matthew 26, 17. And this tells us, and this comes up in the Synoptic uh, Gospels as well. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? So the first day of the unleavened bread, and then they're saying, well, where are we going to uh, meet for the Passover? Well, you have to understand those words have a lot of weight to them. Um, Jesus did this on a Thursday, hence Maundy Thursday. This is in the church here. Um, this is where we get the, the, the name Maundy Thursday. Maundy, it, it, it's not Monday or Monday, uh, but Maundy which is a Latin word that, that comes from the Latin word mandatum or mandate. Uh, this is the night that Jesus also washes the apostles' feet. And he says, a new command I give to you. So this is uh, that, that command that he gives on that Thursday. But this is on that Thursday, the night before the day of atonement for the Jews. That's when the lambs are going to be sacrificed on the altars. And that's going to be on Friday the next day, but the night before they're observing the Passover. All of Israel uh, were commanded to eat a lamb for Passover. They had to cook uh, one of the lambs and then eat this lamb. And this started in Israel's history a very, very long time ago, uh, millennia before this moment. 
And it's while Israel was enslaved, um, enslaved to the Egyptians, God, that's when God instituted the Passover back then. And if you remember, there were the 10 plagues. This is right between the ninth and 10th plague. He institutes the Passover. And he says, um, uh, I'm going to send a 10th plague. And this is, this is going to be it. But this is going to be the death of the firstborn of all the people in Egypt and all the land of Egypt. But in order for your children not to die through that plague, this is what you're to do. And then he gives them the Passover that you take a lamb and then you, you eat the flesh of the lamb and you put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And then death would then pass over all of those homes uh, where uh, it saw the lamb and where it saw the blood of that lamb. Okay, so that, that's the context here. And every year since then, they were supposed to observe the Passover. So that means the year afterward, even when they were free, they observed the Passover. And then the year after that, 20 years later, 50 years, and they had to teach their sons and their sons would grow up and teach their sons over and over and over again. For, for thousands of years, they're observing this Passover. Um, and every year since then, they're doing this in remembrance of that one event they said back then, remember when we were slaves? My great, 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 great grandfather was a slave in Egypt. And God freed him from there with 10 mighty plagues. And then he drowned hard-hearted Pharaoh in, in the sea and, and so on and so forth. Um, and they're remembering their exodus, right? That's what they're remembering. And you can read this in detail in Exodus chapter 12, um, ver verses 1 through 32, you can read the institution of the Passover. It's, it's actually fascinating. I, I wish we had time to go through that. Now, what's happening here on the night when Jesus is betrayed is also the night of the Passover. Jesus then uh, replaces the Passover with the Lord's Supper. So that very night, they've been observing this for thousands of years. And then that night, he says, all of that was pointing, was a shadow a prefiguring of this night, of what I'm about to do for you in this moment. And that is that I'm going to give my own, not the blood of a lamb, not the blood of a, an animal or a beast or a bull. I'm going to give my own body and my own blood to be consumed up, to be destroyed, so that death passes over you. And so this is the significance of his words when he says, um, and do this in remembrance of me. That you're not to remember the Passover anymore. Uh, you're not to remember the Exodus. You're to remember the night that death is passing over you, not by the blood of a lamb, but by the blood of your God, by the blood of Christ. Um, and then he replaces it. And he says, uh, instead of eating the, 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 the lamb, you're eating the flesh and, and drinking the blood of the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That is mine. So take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood. And what is it for? It's for the forgiveness of sins. So, so that's the night. I mean, it's, it's so significant. I, I wish we could have one class to just go through the events of Holy Week, how profound it is and the timing of it all. It's remarkable. But uh, so, so that's when it's the night he's betrayed. And it's also the night of the Passover. So then go, going back to the text, we say, well, what is Jesus giving? What is this? Well, Luke twenty two nineteen says he took bread. Okay, so that's why we use bread. 
Uh, Matthew 26, 27 through 29, uh, it says, and Jesus, and he took a cup and he calls this cup, the fruit of the vine. Um, that is wine. That's uh, what the scriptures use, the term that the scriptures use for wine. Um, uh, so, so Jesus is using and giving bread and wine, the plain words. Luke twenty two nineteen. he continues and he says, this is my body. And then Matthew 26, 28, as he's holding the cup, he says, this is my blood. So Jesus gives us his body and his blood. And those are the plain words. So he gives bread and wine. And he says, this is my body. This is my blood. Um, I want to show you a couple of texts that support this apart from the words of institution that we find this elsewhere in the scriptures. First uh, Corinthians 10, 16. Paul, Paul isn't even talking about this. Uh, indeed, he's not really talking about the Lord's Supper here in the context. But this is just kind of a passing comment. I mean, this isn't the main point of this paragraph, but it's just a, uh, a passing comment. And he says in verse 16, the cup of blessing, that's, he's referring to the Lord's Supper here, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Uh, the the Greek word there literally is koinonia, and you might have heard this before if you were in a Lutheran church or something. This uh, people translate it as fellowship, and like we have to have koinonia, and it's like having hot dogs and burgers after church or something. That that's not the what the word means. This this is communion. This koinonia, this fellowship, this participation is a participation in the blood of Christ. Yes, it's fine to have burgers and hot dogs and things after church. But that's very different than receiving the, 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 the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Um, so, unfortunately, the word koinonia has been cheapened to just mean any sort of social gathering. That's not how Paul is using it. He's saying this is a very specific sort of gathering and participation. Um, so, it's a, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Of course it is. And then he continues, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So here it's kind of a, a side note or a footnote here that he's just saying that this is the body and the blood of Christ, that we're participating and receiving this uh, in this way. The other text I want to show you is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, And this is powerful in, a, um, in another way. And we'll talk about this here in a little bit. Paul continues after uh, reciting the words of institution. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, notice, notice the way Paul is speaking. Um, how he's using these terms almost interchangeably or he's using both going back and forth. He's talking about bread and the cup and then also the body and the blood. 
And then he says, eat of the bread well, and drink of the cup uh, without discerning the body, so on and so forth. Uh, he's, what is he saying here? He's saying that both are present. He's not, it's not just the body and blood of Christ, but he's saying both the body and, or the bread and the body are present. Both the cup and the blood are present. That's the first thing. The second thing is that, look at the way he speaks. He says, um, whoever therefore eats uh, the bread or drinks the cups of, cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning what? He doesn't say you're guilty concerning uh, or, or against the or the bread and the wine of the Lord. You didn't sin against bread and wine, but he says, no, you've sinned against the body and blood of the Lord. How could you sin against something if it's not there? Um, this is the point. Let him examine himself. There's a warning here. What's the worst that could happen if this is only bread and wine? The worst thing is, is you just choke on it. Uh, but here he's talking about something more specific, a spiritual problem. Let him examine himself. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then back in verse 27, there's guilt. So guilt and judgment that's coming upon somebody. That, that can't just be uh, for bread and wine. Um, and it's saying you're sinning against one particular person. That is the uh, Christ himself, the very body and blood of the Lord. Um, okay, so I want to just stop there. But again, we'll come back to this text. The point here is that it, it, it's saying, that, uh, Paul is saying that you're guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And how can you sin against something that uh, is not there if Christ is not present? You can't sin against the body and blood of the Lord if he's only there memorially. You can't sin against the body and blood of the Lord if he's there only spiritually because the body and blood isn't there. It's only his spirit there. So it would make more sense to say that you've sinned against and you're guilty concerning the spirit or the divinity of Christ. But it says the very body and blood of the Lord. Okay, um, I want to take just an excursus here talking about responses to this, to the plain words of Scripture. This is clear. You can read it for yourself in your Bible. This is how it's written. This is faithful to the Greek. It's, it's as, it, as it reads. Um, there are four ways to take Jesus' words here. Um, uh, there, there are four issues to take with the sentence, or three issues you can take up with the sentence, this is my body. And the first person, uh, his name is Andreas Karlstadt. Uh, he lived from 1486 to 1541. So this is about the time of the Reformation uh, in the 1500s. He took issue with the words, which uh, of, of these four words, this is my body. He took issue with the this. He said this, this, this doesn't mean this. When Jesus takes the bread and says this, so you have to watch me here. When Jesus takes the bread and says, this is my body, he wasn't referring to the bread. Rather, Karlstadt said he's pointing to himself. So he picks up the bread and then he breaks it and he gives it to his disciples. And then he says, oh, by the way, this here, this is my body, which is given for you. By the way, eat the bread, but this is my body. So um, that's Karlstadt's view. 
And in fact, he was actually laughed out of uh, all theological discussions for that view. Um, even Zwingli, who denies the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, uh, even he said that was a ridiculous explanation. Because nothing in the text points to that, to Jesus doing some other hand motion or sign language to say, uh, and, and having some non sequitur of, here, by the way, have some bread. Oh yeah, here's my body. Um, even more, it's clear that Jesus tells his disciples to take and eat and that the thing that they're eating, the antecedent to that is that it is the bread and he calls that his body. Um, so the very text itself, just a, a simple reading, honestly, of the text just refutes that point. And that's why Carl uh, Stott was kind of laughed out. Uh, the second issue, so that's a controversy on the word this. Um, the second word in that sentence, this is my body, is the word is. And you can take issue with the word is. So Ulrich Zwingli was a guy who built his theology on taking um, uh, uh, issue with the word is. So he lived from 1484 to 1531. And he says is does not mean is. Uh, when Jesus says is... What he means by the word is, is represents or signifies my body. So he's saying, well, uh, Jesus says this is my body. What he means to say is this represents my body or this signifies my body. Okay. Uh, first of all, there's a, there's a number of points I could go on to here. And I can't spend too much time. If you do have questions on this, I'm happy to answer more on this issue but I'll try to run through them quickly. Um, in no language ever in the history of the world does the word is mean represent. If you did that, you would destroy language. <laughs> you'd, you'd destroy. If is is to be taken figuratively, um, for, uh, I'll get into some other points, but if you're going to take this is figuratively, then why not take the rest of what he's saying figuratively too? And where's the line? You turn the entire text into something figurative. If you say is, which is the most concrete word, um, into something figurative, then the take could mean be something figurative. And you could say, well, take doesn't mean take. It means hear. And the eat doesn't mean eat. It means believe. And the bread doesn't mean the bread. It means the word. And so what we're supposed to do is really hear the word of God and, and believe it. And now you have a totally different thing. Um, so anyway, that's the first thing is, is if you deny uh, the meaning of the word is, you lose the meaning of all language. Um, is is the equal sign of, of language. Um, now people will respond and say, okay, well, Jesus says some other things. He says, I am the door or I'm the vine and you're the branches or things like this. Uh, and they'll bring up his I am statements. He has uh, seven of them in the Gospel of John. And uh, they'll say, well, Jesus says I'm the door. Does this mean he's a literal door? Is he made of wood? <laughs> Does he have a handle? Uh, Does he have hinges on him? Um, and the, the truth is, is Jesus uses the word is here in example. It's the same word in Greek. He uses the word is in examples like this all sorts of times. So what's going on here? Why are we picking one and not the other? Well, first of all, this doesn't 
mean that Jesus symbolizes the door. Um, if you if you say that is here means represents or symbolize, uh, then you're going to say when Jesus says I am the door, he is then saying I symbolize the door or I represent the door. Because if is means represents, that's what Jesus is saying. So he's saying I represent the door or I signify the door. And that would mean that Jesus is saying I'm not the door to heaven. Rather, there is some door to heaven, but I am just a representative of it. I represent the door to heaven. I, I signify the door to heaven. And we're totally different things. So that, that's what happens if you just change the word is. It's already a different sentence. That would mean there's some other real door to heaven and Jesus is representing it. Uh, the second thing is that the symbolism here in the phrase, I am the door, uh, what's symbolic or figurative? It's not the I. It's not the am, the verb uh, to be or to is. Um, the, the, uh, what's taken figuratively is door. Well, what, what, what does he mean by door? Um, the is still means is in all of the cases. You have to say, well, what is this final thing? What does this noun mean? What is the door? Uh, so yes, we all agree. All Christians agree. Jesus is not a literal door. So, so what is he doing? He is a door in a certain sense. He is the door in a certain sense. The, the door in these, in these um, examples uh, is a picture of his work. He's describing the work that he has come to do, which is to open heaven. Uh, third, the third point is that a door doesn't have to be made of wood. Um, we make doors out of wood or steel or things like this, but or glass. Uh, but the function of the door is that it lets you in somewhere. It's an entrance into some place. So when Jesus says, I am the door, he is. He is actually the door to heaven. He is the way to heaven. Uh, the fourth thing here you have to keep in mind is that there's a context. There's a difference in the context. Uh, the context of Jesus saying, I am. Um, he's using analogies and he's speaking figuratively and he prepares the disciples for this. He uses this language and he kind of continues with the metaphor um, as he goes on. However, the context in the Lord's Supper, there's no indication that he's speaking metaphorically uh, or he's not speaking in a parable or he's not saying it's like this or that. Um, Jesus is there in an actual place with actual people and speaking of actual tangible things that he's holding in his hand. There, wa there wasn't a door there when Jesus was saying that. But here, in this context, it's different. Jesus is holding bread and wine in his hand. Now, th there's a fifth point, and it's this, that there's a difference between Jesus saying, I am the door, and saying, this bread is me, is my body. Here, the, the words are reversed. Um, e even more, heaven doesn't have a literal door, but in the Lord's Supper, Jesus is comparing two literal, tangible things that are right there in front of the disciples. They're physical things. He holds a piece of bread in his own hand, and he speaks of his actual body. So, so the main point here is that is means is in every place. In all of language, is means is. Um, 
but uh, uh, first that Jesus wasn't pointing to a literal door when he said this, but he did do that with the bread and the Lord's Supper. I'm going to make another case for this a little bit later when I talk about the purpose of the Lord's Supper and these sort of things. But uh, that's just a quick overview. You can go into this quite a bit and I can uh, expand more upon that as well. But uh, so we've talked so far about this, taking issue with the word this, taking issue with the word is. Well, now what's left? My body. Well, let's, maybe that's a figurative body. Maybe that's like the door being figurative. So maybe, maybe this body is figurative. Well, the person who took issue with that is John Calvin. He lived from 1509 to 1564. Um, he the this body, my body, refers to another body, a figurative body or a spiritual body. Uh, Jesus' body is present, but it's in a different or spiritual presence, a spiritual body. And so we're communing with Jesus in our hearts in heaven with his spirit. Um, that's Calvin's view. And that's what the Reformed, uh, the Presbyterians will hold to. Uh, the issue here is in the text itself when Jesus qualifies what he means by body. <laughs> he says, this is my body, which is given for you, handed over to you. And then he says, this is my blood, not some figurative or spiritual blood. He says, this is my blood, which is shed for you, that comes out of veins for you. Uh, so he's qualifying. I mean, it's almost as if Jesus anticipated there'd be a controversy on what he meant by body or blood. And then he says ahead of time, this is the one that I'm giving to you. This is the one that I'm shedding for you. So it's not a different one. This is the one, this is my own. Uh, now, how could that be? We'll get on that in, in a second. Okay, so that, those are three. So you take issue with this, Issue with is, issue with my body. Well, those are three ways you can read those words. Well, there's a fourth way. And the fourth way is this, that you read it like uh, all of the saints before us, uh, the apostles, like uh, Christ himself, uh, as our dear brother Martin Luther did, uh, who lived from 1483 to 1546. And he said, this is my body means this is my body. That's how he read it. He said that this is this, the bread. The is means is. And the my body is my body. <laughs> Jesus is speaking. If, if you or I said this, I'd look at you like you're crazy. Right? You would look at me like I'm crazy. Because well, I'm a human. I'm, I'm, I'm only human. I'm, I have no power. I have no abilities. Uh, but it's very different. If Jesus says it, he, he just spoke to the storm and it stopped. He was walking on the water. He raised a man from the dead. Uh, he healed a man with leprosy. He, he uh, 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 made a man's arm that was withered grow back. I mean, now, if he says it, now I'm listening. And I'm, I'm going to put a little bit more thought when I read those words, right? That, that's a very different thing. If the person who is saying that is flesh of flesh, then I'm going to question it. But if the person who says that is God incarnate, 
then I'm going to back off and say, okay, that's what you said. That, that's Luther's view. He says, this is God speaking. This isn't even an angel from heaven speaking. This is God who created all things out of nothing. I think he's capable of doing what he says. I, I also think he knows language really well. I, I, he's the word, the word made flesh. So he knows how to be clear. He knows how to not make mistakes. Okay, Luther's view uh, is this, and, and the Lutheran's view is this, that we don't have an interpretation of Jesus' words in the Lord's Supper. We simply have Jesus' words in the Lord's Supper. We don't have a theology of the Lord's Supper. What Jesus says is our theology. We let Jesus speak for himself and we leave to him how it could be. It is not my job to try and figure out how he can be born of a virgin. It's not my job to try and figure out how he creates energy and uh, particles and creates light. It's not my job to try and figure out how he raises somebody from the dead. It's my job to hear what he says and say, amen. That, that's, that's it. So he says this and we simply let Jesus speak for himself. And then uh, we don't tell people that he meant something else. I'm not going to get in the way between Jesus and you. I'm not going to sit here and say, well, really, look, you, you don't get it. It's, you don't get it. What he really meant was this. Or what's really going on is this. Or you got you to gotta understand this. No, he said what he said and he meant what he meant. That's it. That's our theology. Now, uh, I want to get to this next question. The question is, how? How could this be? Is Jesus capable of being fully present in the Lord's Supper? Um, I want to say that many times our presuppositions, the things we have in mind before we read the scriptures about what God can and can't do, get in the way of what the Bible clearly says. In other words, where you begin is where you're going. It's going to determine where you end. Um, here's an analogy. Uh, for I, I learned this from a pilot um, who talked about the 1 in 60 rule. Apparently, this is a thing. And he was saying that for every one degree, so you have the, the nose of the plane aimed at a, at a place. You're saying, I'm trying to go to uh, Chicago. Okay, for every one degree of the plane that veers off the course, it misses its destination by one mile for every 60 miles. This is a big math problem, but uh, the, the point is, so the further you travel, uh, the, farther you, the, the farther you are from your destination. So if you travel 100 yards, you're gonna miss the target by uh, 5.2 feet. Not a big deal. It's, only, it's a short distance, you'll, you're only missing it by that. If you travel one mile and you're off by one degree, you're gonna miss the target by 92 feet. Um, if you travel around the world, around the equator, just flying in a straight line, but you're off by one degree, you're going to miss the target by 500 miles. <laughs> so you're gonna start here and then you're gonna end somewhere down here or, or up here. Um, it's, so you're, you veer off course the longer you go with it. Um, so that means if you have a certain presupposition, my, my point here is this, if you have a certain presupposition 
um, for example, that miracles are impossible before you read the scriptures and you say, well, there's no such thing as miracles. And you're going to read the Bible in a totally different way. And whenever you find a miracle, you're going to explain it away. So uh, you'll, you'll re- if you believe, for example, that the world was brought forth by the Big Bang, that it created itself, everything evolved through the process of macroevolution, and we all came from a puddle or of something, then you're going to read Genesis in a certain way and then conclude, because you had the presupposition that, oh, that, that can't happen, you're going to conclu- have a different conclusion and say, well, um, this is a story. This is imagery. This is poetic. It's not history. If you believe then that Jesus is incapable of fully being present in bread and wine, as he says, then you're going to have to read the words in a different way than the way he plainly said it. And you will have to conclude that he's either speaking symbolically, metaphorically, or spiritually, or some other way that contradicts reason, or that that agrees with reason and doesn't contradict it. Um, My point here is to say, you have to start in the right place. And the right place is this, that God is capable of doing what he says. I'm just going to rattle off a number of uh, texts here, and you could uh, just write them down, or if you want to, if you want them, I could send them to you. Um, Numbers twenty three nineteen says, "God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it, and will he not do it? <laughs> or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it?" Of of course, that's the that's the answer that's anticipated. Hebrews six eighteen. It is impossible for God to lie. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said, I am the truth. Second uh, Timothy 2, 13 says, he remains faithful. That is, God remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. If he is the truth, then he can't lie. He can't deny himself. Isaiah 55, 9 says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And we see this later on in Ephesians 3, verse 20, uh, when Paul writes, Now to him, that is to God, to Christ, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Uh, Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. And then it says this, Nothing is too hard for you. <laughs> Genesis eighteen fourteen says, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Luke eighteen twenty seven says, Jesus says, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Luke one thirty seven says nothing will be impossible with God. This is, this is referring specifically to the incarnation, that Christ is born of a virgin, and he says, well, nothing, nothing. What what does nothing mean? Nothing. It means <laughs> nothing will be impossible with God. Is he capable of everything? Yes, that's the opposite. 
Um, Isaiah 14, 24 says, As I have planned it, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. This is in the context here. It's specifically about his word. That whatever he says happens and will happen. Um, There are not only these texts, but examples from the scriptures of God doing seemingly, well, not seemingly, actually God doing impossible things according to us, but things that are possible for him. He creates the world and everything in it in six days. That's absurd. But he speaks it. No effort, no sweat on his brow, and he does it. Uh, He makes water come from a rock. To barren women, women who cannot bear children, he gave them children. The virgin birth, a woman who could not have children uh, because she was a virgin, then has a child. Uh, The incarnation, God becoming flesh. Christ walking on water, feeding 5,000, taking five loaves of bread and stretching it to feed 5,000 people with leftovers. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension that breaks all of the laws of, of physics, all the laws of buoyancy when he walks on water, all the laws of biology when he raises someone from the dead. I mean, what law is there that he did not break? So can't he break the law of reason and philosophy? And rationality? I think so. Uh, Anyway, so the the main point is that God is truthful and he is almighty. These things go together. So if if he's truthful and he he can't lie and he can do everything, then he can do what he says, even if it seems impossible. Um, Okay, let me move on to this next point and then show you kind of how this all goes together. Um, This is all great and fine about the... Lord's Supper, that he is truly there. Um, And I know I've spent 55 minutes going through this, just showing you that he is there. But the main thing of the Lord's Supper is not even that he's there. That is a big thing. That's huge. But that's not the main thing. Luke 22, 19 says, This is my body, which is given for you for the forgiveness of sins. So the chief reason we receive the body and blood of Christ for us is for this. It is for the forgiveness of sins. As, as great of a mystery as it is that Christ in, himself, in his full body, uh, in his humanity and divinity is fully present at, in, in every piece of bread and wine throughout the whole world at the same time without destroying his humanity. As amazing and fascinating and seemingly impossible as that is, there's an even greater miracle going on, and that is the forgiveness of sins. That if, if, you, if you say, oh, I, I, I accept the forgiveness of sins, but I don't believe that he could be here, truly, in his body and blood, well, what you're doing is you're straining on, uh, you're swallowing the camel and you're straining on a gnat. <laughs> you're swallowing the big thing. You're saying, oh, forgiveness of sins. Oh yeah, of course, God could do that. But he can't be present here. He can't break that law of, uh, he can't break the law of, of, of reason. I mean, come on, of the two things, which is the greater miracle? That he forgives my sins. Because there's absolutely no logic to that. 
I mean, you say, well, he forgives my sins. Why? Because he died for me. Well, why did he die for me? Because he loves me. Why does he love me? Now we're stumped. We have no answer. I don't know. I don't know. He loves me. I, I've sinned against him time and time again. I, I've, I've, I've hurt God. I've blasphemed his name. I've lived as if he didn't matter. And then he forgives me again and again and again. And he wipes away the sins of the world. That is a far greater miracle. Um, so that's why I don't have such a big problem with Christ saying he's present in the Lord's Supper. Because I believe the forgiveness of sins. And if you can believe the greater thing, then I think you can believe the lesser thing. <laughs> um, okay, now what is the connection? Well, why? Why is there a connection? What, why does he have to be present in the Lord's Supper and then the forgiveness of sins? Why does he say it this way? Um, real quick, I know we're coming up on our time. Uh, 7.15 is our original ending time. Uh, however, because I started late, I'm going to keep going. If you have to sign off and, and leave, you can go ahead. Um, it's going to be recorded and it's going to be uploaded here in uh, 30 or so minutes. But uh, I'm going to keep going until about 7.30, so another 15 or so minutes. Um, okay, so what is the connection between Christ's presence and the Lord's Supper and the forgiveness of sins? Well, the fact that Jesus is truly present in the Lord's Supper is the reason the Supper gives the forgiveness of sins. That's the connection. They're two, two sides of the same coin. If you want... If you want the body of Christ and blood of Christ, well, then you, it comes with forgiveness. And if you want forgiveness, you find forgiveness in nobody else except the body and blood of Christ. Uh, what's the song that everybody likes? And saying, uh, uh, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? Uh, well, that's what we're saying. That's why the Lord's Supper does what it does. That's why it gives the forgiveness of sins. Uh, because there is forgiveness and salvation in no one else but Christ, that is the connection to his blood that forgives. Uh, if the blood of Jesus isn't there, then you have a problem. Then whose blood is forgiving me? Is wine forgiving me? Is, is bread forgiving me? Giving me forgiveness? Uh, how can Jesus say that bread and wine forgive then sins if he's not there? In fact, all those who question how or if Christ is present in the Lord's Supper they have trouble getting over this second set of words that is the forgiveness of sins because Jesus clearly and plainly says it. <laughs> um, if we accept Jesus' words that, it's, that, that it is for our forgiveness, then we should accept Jesus' words that it's his body. And if we doubt Jesus' words that it is his body, then we would also doubt that it is for, for, for our forgiveness. Jesus' words stand and fall together. You can't have the body and blood of Christ and then dismiss the forgiveness of sins. You can't have the forgiveness of sins and dismiss the body and blood of Christ. So the Zwinglian and the Reformed view, it does not bestow or give forgiveness. Uh, in the Lutheran view, and even, even in the Catholic view, there is forgiveness. Although the Catholics would say it's a partial forgiveness. A, a forgiveness for actual sins. But... Lutherans would say, Jesus didn't make a distinction. He didn't say, well, these are for all of the sins since your baptism. He just says, this is for the forgiveness of sins. All of them. <laughs> so, so the Lutherans hold this unique view uh, that's almost in between the two. Um, that uh, 
Uh, it is for the forgiveness of sins that Christ is there. It is bread and wine and at the same time body and, and the blood of Christ. Um, <clears throat> let me, okay, I'm going to close with this, these final couple of questions. Let me restart the, or start a new recording here. Okay, so I want to get to this next part, which is how is the Lord's Supper different from baptism and absolution? Uh, we saw the text in 1 Corinthians 11, 27. Uh, we'll get there. Um, actually, we, actually, we won't get there. We won't have to have time to go through that again. But you should read it on your own. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 29. Um, baptism and absolution are gifts. And they give the forgiveness of sins. And they give benefits. Remember, baptism now saves you. Uh, faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ. But the Lord's Supper is beneficial. It gives the forgiveness of sins. But it is the only thing that Jesus is giving that comes also with a warning that it is detrimental. It can be detrimental to us. So go back and read 1 Corinthians 11, uh, starting at verse 27, and you can see that for yourself. Because of that, this is where we get a practice, the practice called closed communion with a D, closed communion, not close, uh, closed communion, as opposed to what others would call open communion. Closed communion uh, means that the sacrament of the altar is closed to all who would take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Uh, those who can't or won't examine themselves and those who would eat of it without discerning the body of Christ. Those are the three things that we get in um, in 1 Corinthians 11. It is the, uh, the un taking it in an unworthy manner, examining yourself and without dis discernment. Um, open communion, on the other hand, will commune anyone regardless of whether they can do those things or not. And I know this is a very sensitive subject and it's a very emotional. I, I want to be clear here, uh, just a few things, is that First of all, um, it is not saying that if you don't receive communion, that you're going to hell. Or if, if you are not giving the Lord's Supper, for example, at Zion, that you're not a Christian, you're going to hell. I, I don't commune my own sons. Well, it's not because they're going to hell. It's not because they're not Christians. It's they have no idea what they're taking. And the day will come when I teach them. And I will tell them what this is. And I, w I will rejoice in, in them having it. But keep in mind that no doesn't mean never. Right? I tell my sons no for a time. But I'm not saying you can never have it. I'm saying you can have it. I want you to have it. And the whole church wants you to have it. But we want you to have it in the right way. We want you to receive it to your benefit. Because Jesus said that there is a detriment. Paul says this. There's a detriment here with this. And we don't want you to have it to your detriment. Um, so I know it's a, it's a very uh, kind of controversial and emotional sort of topic, uh, especially when it comes to family and loved ones. But there's a reason we do this. And it's a loving thing. It, closed communion is oftentimes seen as some mean, unwelcoming sort of thing. Um, but it, it is loving. And I'll, I'll get to that in, in a moment here. Um, the scriptures say that you ought to examine yourself. And I think there's three main questions you have to ask yourself in order to examine yourself. Um, 
the first is, am I sorry for my sins? You ask yourself, do I have sins? And the answer is, yes, you do. Uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You're lying to yourself. So the answer is, yes, I have sins. And then the question is, are you sorry for your sins? Well, I, I think a better question would be, um, do you hate your sins? Do your sins bother you? Do, do you loathe them and despise them with all your heart? If, if you don't hate your sins, then why are you seeking the forgiveness of your sins? Um, even more, the question you should ask is, even more than that is whether you hate them or not is kind of irrelevant. The question is, does God hate your sins? And the answer is, yeah. Um, and so if God hates your sins, then you should too. You should love what God loves and hate what he hates. In fact, it's a sin to love your sins. That's a worse sin than just sinning, is to love sinning and to still come to the Lord's Supper. That's a sin. The Lord's Supper isn't for God to accept or ignore your sins. He's not doing that. He's not ignoring your sins. He is confronting them head on. The Lord's Supper is a pronouncement of judgment upon you. If God has to forgive you, then what does that imply? That it implies that you have sin that needs to be forgiven. If God forgave the sins of the world, then it implies that the whole world is sinful. Okay, so that's the first question. Am I sorry for my sins? Do I hate them with all my might? Yes. The second question is this. Do I believe that Christ died for my sins, my sins, and that in the Lord's Supper, he gives me his body and his blood? You, you need to ask yourself that. And when Jesus tells you he's forgiven you, the question is, do you believe him? If you don't, if you don't believe that Jesus has forgiven your sins, then what? You're calling God a liar. It's a sin to say, look, well, I know, I know Jesus says he, forgive, uh, he forgave the sins of the world, but I don't think he's going to forgive my sins. I, not what I did, not what I did this week, not, not my sins, my, my faults and my guilt. He's not gonna forgive that. When you deny that Jesus can forgive you, that he does forgive you, then you're saying that his death on the cross wasn't good enough. Now, that is receiving it in a guilty way. That is, that is sinning against Christ. That's calling him a liar. If he says, I forgive you, then it's true, <laughs> right? That, that's the point. So yes, what he says about your sin, you say that is true. And I deserve temporal and eternal punishment and death. And then when he says, I forgive you, then you say, yes, that's true. And it's not because you saw something in me that's redeemable. It's because it's not because of my heart. It's because of your heart, Lord. Your heart is loving. It is overflowing with mercy for sinners and worms like me. That, that is what you're saying. Okay, this, the third question is this, and it kind of loops back to the first one is this. Do I intend to amend my ways and follow God's word? So this is connecting back to the first question. Uh, if you don't hate your sins, then that means that you want to, that means you like them. And that means you want to continue in them, continue doing them. 
if your intent if your intention is to continue committing those same sins that you came to the altar with that's your intention then you're not taking the lord's supper in a way that you should part of hating your sins means making a commitment to stop committing those sins whether it's putting a plan in place or making a change or stopping or whatever it is with with that um trying to it's your intention there's a very big difference between trying and failing and not trying at all it's one thing to say look i keep losing my cool god help me please i i don't want to do this i hate getting angry. God, uh, take my sin away. I, I deserve your wrath for this, but through your son, Jesus Christ, forgive me. And then you, you go through the week and you try and you, 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 you pray and you do devotions and then you fail again. And then you come back the next week and say, God, help me, please. I promised, help me again. And you fail again. Th- that's one thing. It's very different to then say, it doesn't matter. God forgives me. I'm just going to go out I'm going to receive, I'm, I'm going to go out and do whatever. I'm going to go get drunk on Saturday and then show up on Sunday. Well, why? Because God forgives me. And I have no intention of changing my life. I have no, I, I have no intention of even trying to, to make a change. That, that's a problem, right? Um, and that means you are then receiving it in an unworthy way. Uh, I, I want to make this point, and there's a danger here, but I want to be clear. Don't think that admission to the Lord's Supper is based on behavior. It's based on confession. Um, And there's a difference, like I said, between trying and failing and not trying at all. Um, Okay, I want to get to this last point. I I realize I'm running out of time here. I have about five minutes left. But um, let me see. Okay, let me talk about uh, closed communion a little bit more with one more analogy. Um, what's the difference between a good pharmacist and a bad pharmacist? The good pharmacist gives you the right medicine at the right time. And the bad one does it at the wrong time or gives you the wrong medicine. In order for a pharmacist to prescribe you something, he's got to know what you have, what the issue is a pharmacist can give you the right medicine with a good intention at the wrong time and it's going to harm you if you don't have the disease then it can actually destroy you right um so so this is the point medicine is powerful that's why you put it in uh in a cabinet and you don't leave it out with the toys for for children to have that's why they have the lock uh, uh kids proof uh tops on it and the uh, the locks on them because they're powerful um if we take those measures and we're so careful with how we take medicine that just affects our body how much more powerful is the word of christ which affects not just body but also soul unto eternity now if we you take prescription drugs seriously then you should take the Lord's Supper even more seriously is the point. Now, uh, I, w- I want to close with this. There's two reasons for um, not giving someone the Lord's Supper. And we could talk about it as a, a, a horizontal realm. 
this way, and a vertical realm. Um, so with the final minutes, I'll kind of summarize this quickly. In the horizontal realm, um, this would be commandments 4 through 10. So, for example, uh, say that a, um, a husband is beating his wife. Now, he abuses his wife. He, um, he's doing this. And it's a member of the church or something. I'm not saying this is happening at all. I'm just, this is an example. Okay, uh, somebody's beating his wife. He comes to the altar and I, I find out about this or they tell me. And uh, what do I do? Well, communing the man uh, who continues to do this would be detrimental to him. And uh, he's also purposely sinning and he's not trying to amend his ways or anything. And the poor wife is suffering and she's beaten and bruised and bleeding and, and she's pleading for help. If I commune the man, well, then he's going to think it's all right. I'm forgiven. I just go on ahead. And just go on, keep on doing what I'm doing. And God will be there for me next week and I'll forgive. Who cares? I'm not going to try to control my temper. I'm just going to lose it every time. And the poor wife is condemned and enslaved in this awful existence. Well, in that situation, uh, what the church has done is it tells, in this specific situation, the wife, you continue receiving the Lord's Supper so that your faith is strengthened and you receive the forgiveness of sins and the consolation of the gospel. And you, sir you are not to receive the Lord's Supper. And in fact, if you do receive it, it's, you're guilty of sinning not only against your wife, but also against God who made your wife. And God is forgive. He wants to forgive you. He has the forgiveness of sins here ready for you, but you don't want it because you don't even say what you're doing is a sin. And so therefore, you can't receive it. Now it's bad for you. Now the same Lord's Supper is beneficial to the wife and it's harmful to the husband, in, who, the one who is sinning impenitently. Okay? Um, and it would be wrong then to withhold communion from the wife, right? <laughs> and then give it to the husband. And it would be wrong to commune them both or to not commune them both. That's the point. Now that's for sins against uh, our neighbor. That's this horizontal realm. If, if somebody's stealing something, then say, you, look, you got to stop stealing. You can't keep stealing. Uh, or give back the stuff you stole. Um, if you have, uh, uh, I don't know, a gambling addiction, well, you got to try to give it up. <laughs> you, you, you have to stop. Just here's one way to do it. Just stop going to the casino. You can't gamble at a casino if you're never there. Okay, so start with there. Um, but now it's this hor uh, vertical realm. So yes, it's true that for sins against the neighbor, we would withhold communion. It's also true that sins against God would withhold communion. That means if somebody comes into the church and says, hey, um, what do you guys believe? And they say, we believe that baptism saves us because 1 Peter 3.21 plainly says that. And then they say, yeah, no, nope, I don't believe it. I believe, uh, I, I, I believe baptism is a symbol. Then what do we do? Do we say, okay, well, no, no worries. Just come on and commune. Well, no, because now what is he doing? He's calling God a liar. <laughs> He's saying, well, here's the plain words of scripture and I don't agree with them. And then we're saying we agree with them. What, what is communion? Uh, the word literally means together as one. Uh, Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, let there be no divisions among you. Be of one mind, one spirit, and so on and so forth. Um, 
he's not talking about what team we root for or all of our political opinions uh, regarding they're not based on morality or things like this, things that we can disagree upon. He's not talking about colors or whatever, or history. He is talking about doctrine. We ought to be of one mind in doctrine. That means we ought to be saying the same thing. So we don't commune with, we don't commune people um, who disagree with the scriptures. And we don't commune with people who teach uh, and dismiss the scriptures. So if somebody says, well, this isn't the very body and blood of Christ, well, then we would say, well, then you're not ready to receive it because Jesus said he is. And the whole point of this is, okay, well, you can join the next AIC class next year. And then we, that's the point is I'm laying it all out so that you hear it. And then you say, yep, I heard what you had to say. I saw what the Bible said. I agree. And they say, awesome. That means you're with us. But if you hear it and you say, no, I don't agree. That's fine. I'm not going to chase you down, but we just realize you, we don't agree. And because we don't agree, we shouldn't pretend that we agree. Communion means unity. And we want true unity. We don't want pretend unity. We don't want fake unity. We don't want one, one person at the rail saying, I pray to Mary. And another one saying, I only pray to Christ. We don't want one saying, um, uh, uh, I make a decision for Christ and the other saying, well, God chose me from before the foundation of the world. We don't want one saying one and the other. We want to be united in confession and doctrine. And the only way I can figure out what's in your heart is if I hear what you say. So I can't read your hearts. So this is why I need to hear what you say. Okay. Uh, I know we're over time and I could keep talking about this, but uh, if you have questions, please email me. Uh, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.